Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Woo. <laughs> I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight by a huge team, Dr. Krista Chumanchu, uh, our wonderful producer, Jess Kelly. Jess, say hi. Hey, everybody. We also have two wonderful off-air producers joining us on this episode. Welcome to the team, Dr. Jamie Lim and Dr. Michael Fish-Fishman. How's it going, guys? It's good. Excited to be here. It's great. Thanks so much for having us. We have two special guests tonight, Dr. Alex Hirsch from Pediatric Emergency Medicine and Dr. Pratima Nandavada from uh, Surgery, teaching us all about acute appendicitis. But before we dive into content, hey, Chris, can you remind us about the show? Of course. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Jamie, do you want to tell us about our first of our two guests tonight? Yeah, we have a fantastic conversation with our two guests tonight. Dr. Alex Hirsch is a pediatric emergency medicine attending at Boston Children's Hospital and an instructor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Pratima Nandavada is a pediatric surgery attending at Boston Children's Hospital and assistant professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. We discuss the best pediatric appendix risk stratification scores, different imaging modalities for the appendix, and operative versus non-operative management. Guys, I am so McBurning for people to listen to this episode. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I have one too. Uh, uh, hey, Jess, do any diseases read the textbook? I don't think so. Uh, some read most of the textbook, but not the appendix. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> We're very excited to welcome both Alex and Pratima to the show, to the Cribsiders, talking about appendicitis. Alex Pratima, welcome to the Cribsiders. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. We are very informal, obviously, and I we know we talked about it before the show, but is it okay if we refer by your first names? Of course. Yes. Thank you. Now that we're all friends, it's very wonderful. And one of the first questions we always like to, to ask to get to know you a little bit better, for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better, is just a little bit about yourself, maybe a one-liner about who you are, something that you're interested in outside of medicine and Pratima, would love to start with you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a mom to six-year-old Karen and wife to Jesse. Um, I'm a budding surgeon scientist studying Hirschsprung disease, and I absolutely love food, cooking it, eating it, but not so much cleaning up. Excellent, excellent, love it. Um, what's do you are are you a chef? What's your what's your go-to recipe? Um, well, I love making Indian food, but my husband's of Polish and Irish descent, so we like to mix things from different cultures and kind of make it up as we go. So um, every day is a little bit different. I don't have a favorite. Excellent. Cool. Very uh, uh, avant-garde fusion, it sounds like. This is great. <laughs> yes. Maybe bangers and marash plus like, uh, like non bread or something like that? or <laughs> yeah, something like that. A lot of stews um, with Indian spices mixed in. That's nice. awesome. Yeah. That's great. And, and Alex, how about yourself? Uh, well, thanks for having me, guys. I'm uh, I'm a Bostonian at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm from Texas originally, um, from Houston. Uh, I have a cockapoo named Scout, and I'm a big Houston sports fan, so I like to watch a lot of sports. March Madness coming up. Nice, nice. Nice. Actually, 
also from Texas, uh, Texas Tech, which I mentioned yeah, I saw that today, which is very exciting. Yeah, um, we actually have a decent basketball team every now and then. So March Madness, it's exciting for us. That's awesome. Yeah, we're we're a UT fan. We're not so good this year. <laughs> so it's a building year. It's a building yeah, year. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear uh, your favorite book. I could use a new recommendation. I just finished um, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, who passed away this year. And it's a heavy read, but it's a really interesting perspective of, you know, what our patients' families experience after loss or at the bedside of a critically ill person. And I just found the way she talked about it to be really enlightening and, and very real. Um, so I'd highly recommend it for anyone who's in those um, tough situations with patients. We'll have to check that one out. Mm-hmm. Um, I Mine has nothing to do with medicine, I have to say, but uh, it's this book, Cavalier and Clay, uh, by this guy, Michael Chabon. Have you guys read it? Yeah. It's, it's awesome. It's it's about these two uh, group of guys growing up in New York, and they end up writing a comic book. It's it's great. Uh, definitely recommend it. That nice, was a nice. classic. Yeah, I, that's a good choice. I haven't I haven't thought about that book in a, a long time, but it was uh, yeah. it was a great read. Yeah. Well, the last story I, I read about two guys who made a comic book was Captain Underpants, where my kids watched this movie over and over again. So I've read that one a few times. Yeah. <laughs> also a similar genre. Yeah. Um, so my favorite question is, what is the best advice you ever received as a learner? And let's start with Alex. So um, just before fellowship, one of my mentors, Jason Levy, he basically told me when you are looking at the track board and there's a million patients you could choose from, the one where your mouse kind of hovers and you're a little nervous and your heart kind of skips a beat, that's the one you should always. And I've kind of tried to stick with that with my career. And I, I feel like it's helped me grow a lot. I think it's the ones that you have some knowledge gap or it's, it makes you nervous in some way. And I think it's just a good general principle. So that's that's been some good advice prior to fellowship uh, clinically for me. That uh, I think also applies really well to the dating apps. If the the one that, that, uh, <laughs> that no. makes a sack of cards. No. No. <laughs> uh, Pratima, what about you? You know, actually, um, my favorite advice comes from a band uh, called MGMT, and they have this great song called "Kids." Um, and the line from the song is, uh, "Take only what you need from it." And surgical training can be pretty brutal, and learning doesn't always happen in the most ideal environment. So I've found it to be helpful to realize, you know, there's a little nugget of something I can learn in any situation. The rest I can just pay attention to process and leave behind. Love it. I love that. That's a good one. That's really good. I'm going to write that one down. Um, (laughs) I like that It's a great music video. Yeah, I like that. All right, Jess, you want to get us started in some content? Yeah, let's get started with our case. So Abby, she's a 12-year-old healthy female, and she's coming in with one day of right lower quadrant abdominal pain. Her pain started yesterday as mild discomfort around the periumbilical region, although over the course of the past 24 hours, it's migrated to the right lower quadrant and increased in severity to what she describes as an 8 out of 10. She has been feeling increasingly nauseous and this morning had an episode of non-bloody, non-billy emesis. On the car ride over to the ED, she says that every time they hit a bump, she feels a severe, sharp, and stabbing pain. So we're all thinking, this sounds like our classic story from the textbook of appendicitis. So to kind of start us off, Alex, what actually is the appendix? Yeah, uh, from from my perspective, it's it's one of my number one enemies in the ED. Uh, and it's, it's humbled me more times than I care to admit. So it's this finger-like blind tube that's connected to the cecum in the right lower quadrant. 
Um, the thinking for a long time is that it was this vestigial organ that was this remnant that we didn't need anymore. And clearly you don't need it to live. The surgeons take it out all the time. Um, but there's some kind of newer research that maybe it's helpful for maintaining healthy gut flora and maybe is helpful for supporting immunity. But uh, we're still kind of learning a little bit about what's the point of it anyway. I admit, I didn't realize that that was the new evidence that there was a, a function is there's some evidence bases for people like what's that based on of people that have had an appendectomy? Do they have more GI issues later on? Or is this all kind of in there's vitro a, lab? Yeah, there's a smattering of evidence. Uh, but but for example, there's one study that showed this much higher rate of C. diff in patients who have had appendectomies compared to not. Uh, so there's some thought that, uh, again, this is uh, still a little bit theoretical that maybe there's actually a, a little bit of a point to it. This is starting off already with a great pearl, though, because I feel like sometimes the favorites of the podcast episodes are those pearls that on rounds when you have very basic appendicitis. You say, you know, I heard on a podcast that they're at more risk for C. diff later. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the med students can feel like that that was their contribution for the day. So, um, Yeah, like someone with C. diff and they say, did they take their appendix out when they were younger? And they're like, how'd you know? Nice. nice. Yeah. This is great. And so um, – uh, Pratima, as the surgeon, can I ask you, the expert of appendicitis, you know, what is appendicitis? How, do, how does this happen? You know, how common is it? Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, maybe the pathophysiology or something. You know, what, what is the, the diagnosis of appendicitis? Yes, and I, I have to agree with Alex. The appendix is our enemy and humbling for surgeons <laughs> as much as it is for everyone else. Um, and I think what's tricky about it is it's appendicitis really just literally means inflammation of the appendix. And that's important because the name doesn't specify why it happened um, or what the reason for the inflammation is. So it can be primarily inflamed. Sometimes it's because of an obstructing fecalith, like a little ball of poop, basically, that's stuck in there, causes the appendix to swell up with its own mucus, and then just like the way a gallbladder or any other part of the body gets um, obstructed and it can become inflamed. In some cases, it's obstructed because of a tumor. Or when neither of those show up, we wonder if it's because of that overzealous lymphoid tissue that some of which um, Alex was referring to. It can also be secondarily inflamed. So sometimes we see appendicitis, but it's not because there's something wrong with the appendix. It's just in the neighborhood of other inflammation like terminal ileitis or colitis that might even be kind of far away from the appendix. And certainly any kind of general peritonitis like in spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So some of our job as clinicians is to ask, you know, why is the appendix inflamed and do we blame the appendix or do we blame something else? Now, how, how common is it? Do we, do we see it same distribution among all, all the ages or should we be more cognizant and thinking about it as higher and differential at, in different age groups? It's about, I've seen studies of something like 8% of children who present with acute abdominal pain will end up having appendicitis and the lifetime risk is somewhere, you know, in that 7 to 10% range. So it's not as common as you think, although of kids showing up with belly pain, it's, it's our most likely uh, target most of the time. I think appendicitis stands out to us most in our teenagers because they tend not to complain of a lot of other things. So I, I feel like I see it more in teens, but I think it's pretty evenly distributed. The one thing is you can get appendicitis in infancy, but it's that's really rare. So it's uh, if you're seeing something on an ultrasound with inflammation there, you should really ask yourself if the primary source is the appendix. Gotcha. So Alex, we have this 12-year-old who's coming into your emergency department all right, at, here at, at Cashback Children's Hospital. You know, what are you doing when you first walk in the room? Like, how are you approaching this child? 
Yeah, I, and this one um, with appendicitis, it's it's easy when it's easy. So uh, this one really feels like appendicitis to me. And so they would get sort of our standard kind of workup that would be lab work and ultrasound. And then we'd have a surgical friend come to see them eventually. But I think I found that it's often not this easy. And um, that's, I think, where it gets more fun um, and more interesting. So I think the challenging thing with pediatrics, especially, is we have this ocean of kids that have common complaints, and among them are more rare diagnoses. And so how do you not miss things like appendicitis among this ocean of gastro or common headaches or whatever the kind of more rare complaint is which you're looking for and not work up everyone? And so it'd be easy if we got lab work and an ultrasound on every kid with gastro, but then we would be working up everyone. And it also would be in some ways easy if we worked up kids that were only like this case, but then we would miss a lot. And so where's that line? And I think that's part of what's really fun about PEM. For me, I have a pretty low threshold because I think the consequences aren't trivial to miss it. And as we mentioned earlier, have been humbled more times than I care to admit. The ones I'm convinced are just gastro often aren't. But I think you need at least some degree of tenderness or discomfort to get in the door. So the kids that are just nauseous or just having uh, vomiting only or fever only, I don't necessarily go down appendicitis route, but it's really the pain for me is the thing that starts me down the road to begin with. And that's right lower quadrant pain? Uh, Not always. Uh, So um, that would be easy too. Um, Sometimes they can kind of present atypically. It could be super pubic or kind of more to their back. Uh, If they're you know, perforated, it can be more generalized. So I think it's nice when it's right lower quadrant, but I don't always take that as reassuring that it's not right lower quadrant. And for our patient where it is a little bit more of the textbook presentation, uh, she has the peri-umbilical pain that migrates to the right lower quadrant. She has the nausea and emesis. She had the pain on every bump. But are there, what are the common history things, especially in the emergency department that are the red flats, in addition to the tenders that make you start thinking the down the appendix, uh, appendicitis pathway? Yeah. So um, I can I can tell you at Boston Children's, um, and we may get to this later, we, we talk about this pediatric appendicitis score uh, that's part of a clinical pathway. And so on it, there's some key kind of clinical um, historical features that I just use as part of my histories that I take, A, because it's associated with appendicitis, but B, it's evidence-based, and I kind of use that to kind of gauge are they high or low risk for appendicitis. So the big things for me are, do they have migration of their pain that starts anywhere and eventually kind of migrates to the right lower quadrant? Do they have anorexia with decreased appetite? Do they have nausea or vomiting? Right lower quadrant tenderness is one of the more predictive things, as you could imagine cough or hopping pain. So sometimes I'll ask that if the bumps on the way in bother them, or sometimes I'll actually have them get out of bed and jump up and down. And then fever is the the other thing in the last kind of 24 hour to 48 hours. I'm curious, uh, we talked, so two quick questions. One, you know, kind of talking about this physical exam, Pratima as a surgeon, I'm very curious kind of what your physical exam maneuvers. What is the surgical team, we'll, we'll talk about imaging, we'll talk about uh, getting surgical workup in a second, but are there specific maneuvers that the, the surgical team relies on? And to both of you, maybe um, the hopping on one foot, you know, how any sense of the specificity of sensitivity on that test is I've always been taught that. And then does that mean that if a kid hops on one foot, I'm sending them home or, you know, what, what are your kind of thoughts on the physical exam portion of the appendicitis uh, diagnosis? We'll start with Pratima. 
Yeah, I think what Alex said is true that they don't really come in a specific format and kids don't follow the rules, they make them. But that being said, I definitely find kids who, even if you're not seeing them jump up and down, it's hard for a kid with rip-roaring appendicitis to stand up totally straight. So sometimes you'll see them kind of hunched over, walking around, unusual for a kid to do. I think point tenderness while they're distracted really helps. And so for me, I'll be honest, I don't do the leg maneuvers and a lot of those other things that we learned about in medical school. For me, it's I start a conversation with the parent, then I start a conversation with the kid. And while the kid's talking about something else, I see if they show me sort of passive signs of tenderness. So that is that rigidity in the right lower quadrant, um, what we call involuntary guarding, I think can be super helpful. And that's when you see them tense their abdominal muscles because you're touching them, not because um, they intentionally do that. And that I think can be really helpful. But there's no, there is no real home run. And as Alex said, sometimes for me, suprapubic tenderness can definitely be a sign of appendicitis, recent diarrhea. Um, but there's not one move. Uh, I think distractibility is definitely uh, something that works against appendicitis. Kids will usually show you tenderness. So should we know things like McBurney sign and Aaron sign and all these other named signs? Is, is it important to, or is it just like, you know, I'm going to push all over the belly anyways. If I have rigidity, if I have tenderness, then those just make it to it. And I, I don't have to worry about exactly naming those signs in my note. I think they're mostly there to keep our med students challenged. But, you know, I, I think just having a good feel for a generalized abdominal exam is the way to go. But those signs and those eponyms, I think just remind us to pay attention to those things. So learning them that way, I think, is, is still helpful. But ultimately, um, with practice, you'll notice some of those subtle things as you just have a conversation with a kid. So my question is, when you have a kid come in and you're not quite sure, is this appendicitis? Is this something else? What is the approach you take? Do you get a bunch of labs and see kind of how likely it is? Do you just go right to an imaging modality? How do you approach that when a kid walks in the door? I think it depends on the degree of concern. Um, so the patient in the case that you had gone over, they've got to have such a high chance of having appendicitis that even with equivocal or normal imaging, I still would want an ultrasound, a, a surgeon to review them and to see them. And so for them, I would be getting lab work and ultrasound and a surgical consult kind of all uh, together. I mentioned before that our clinical pathway in the pediatric appendicitis score. And so What's a little bit tricky about our pathway is that two of the points on the pediatric appendicitis score are a white count and an ANC. And so by the letter of the law, you should get your labs before deciding if you want to get an ultrasound because you could sort of become into a low risk group if you have a low enough score, but you can't really know that generally until you get the lab work. I'll say what happens in practice um, just for flow reasons in the ED and just practicality reasons is that what actually happens is if there's some degree of concern for appendicitis, so if they're somewhat tender or having pain, then I'll just get the labs and ultrasound at the same time. Um, and then depending on that, we'll, we'll involve the surgeon. So that's kind of my general approach. So my, my question coming from like a practicing pediatrician in, in my own office, you know, you're saying that, you know, definitely abdominal pain is very common, you know, gastroenteritis, whatnot. Sometimes these kids may be walking into my acute clinic or my urgent care clinic. What are some red flag things that I really need to be paying attention to? Be like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to need an ultrasound and I'm going to need labs. I need to send it to the emergency department. What, what are some of those things that I need to be looking out for? And maybe Alex, since you're sort of in that yeah. area. Um, I, you know, I think that the 
pediatric appendicitis score is helpful because then you can at least get yourself to a low risk cohort based on physical exam and clinical historical features such that you can be pretty reassured that they don't have appendicitis. But I I have to say, I never once in my head do I question a pediatrician who sends in someone for appendicitis because it is just so hard. And I would, I personally would find it challenging to practice in the primary care setting thinking about appendicitis because it's just hard to have the ultrasound capabilities that are just not a big deal for me to get in my kind of setting. I have to say little kind of key things like not being able to walk with straight or having uh, kind of peritoneal signs like bumps in the way, those are uh, kind of easy tip-offs. And of course, if they have kind of classic appendicitis type signs, but I've just come to realize it could present so indolently and atypically that I, I think no one would fault you for just sending them in. I feel, I've used that, I feel like, in... um the outpatient setting sometimes where it's kind of low risk and I'll do labs. And if it's an elevated white count, not to put all on that, but sometimes that'll be the extra data point that says we really need to, to send them in. Um, yeah, that seems reasonable. And I'll say, um, th- I know that there's a couple different scores. It seems like the pediatric appendicitis score has one over the Alvarado score. I know is the other one that uh, is commonly used. Is that a stylistic thing or is there one, is it, uh, based on institution, any insights into what pediatric assessment score might be best for us to use? So I'll just say that the PAS score has kind of won out over the Alvarado score and has been shown to have a little bit of better test characteristics. The guy who discovered it or or described it uh, has come out with a new and improved uh, one called the Park score. The different that one actually does outperform the PAS score if you look at their kind of uh, sensitivity specificity curves. That one has it. It would basically need an EMR calculator to use it, though. So that that one basically you can um, input a lot of sort of granular clinical data, and it'll spit out a more exact sort of estimate. As opposed to the PAS score, is a little bit easier in real time on the back of a napkin to kind of uh, kind of get a sense. So it's just a little bit uh, more user friendly and easier to use. But for the academicians out there, the uh, Park score may be a more accurate kind of representation. That's great. I didn't see this. This is cool. So one question I have is, you know, we, we sort of talked about ultrasound a little bit, and definitely it's 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 a tool that can be used in, in many situations. Now, I mean, I, I assume in, in a pediatric hospital when you're doing, you're, you're often getting a, a formal ultrasound where you have an ultrasound tech who's really well trained. And I know a lot of ultrasound is based on the user. Is there a place to, uh, for POCUS, for a physician can learn to be good at doing appendicitis ultrasounds? Or is that not really thing, something that we can expect a, a pediatrician or, or a PAM physician to be able to do? Absolutely. Um, it, as you said, ultrasound uniquely is operator dependent. And so as opposed to an x-ray that the machine is just as good as any other machine, um, it really is a skill. Um, and so some people's sensitivity specificity may be higher than others. There's a lot of providers that feel pretty comfortable using ultrasound as part of their kind of skill set. I'd say in our group, the ultrasound subdivision and gurus who do it a lot, they like it to kind of help to risk stratify is kind of how they use it. So if they see a rip-roaring appendicitis, that may kind of encourage them to give radiology a call and say, hey, this is one I really think is appendicitis, to call the surgeons on the earlier side, maybe start antibiotics on the earlier side. But I think it may depend on the institution, but my my guess is a lot of surgeons would be reticent to take someone to the OR based on a, a POCUS exam. So I think it's just helpful to start to think about them and as, as another data point, I think is more how I've seen it used. 
Is this true from the surgery standpoint? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, you know, it's interesting. Ultrasound is the first line, and it's definitely what the American College of Radiology recommends. It's not always available, and there's lots of places where children get initial point-of-care evaluations where they don't have that capability. So we certainly still get a lot of referrals from other hospitals who come in with CTs. Um, and ultimately, you have to take care of the kid with what you have. But if you have ultrasound available, for me, there's two things I want to see. One, you know, information about the appendix itself, how dilated is it, the surrounding signs of inflammation, so what we call secondary signs of inflammation, fat stranding, thickening, hypervascularity of the appendix, any free fluid that might suggest perforation, Appendicolith is always helpful. And then lastly, and this might seem kind of silly, but actually following it back and showing that it comes from the cecum because terminal ileitis can absolutely mimic appendicitis. And these things are not so crystal clear to tell apart on an ultrasound. So I agree with Alex. I don't know that you would necessarily make a point of care decision um, in the emergency room based on the results of those ultrasound. And some of those little details actually influence what I would recommend for treatment. So I think a real thorough ultrasound has a lot of value um, in diagnosing appendicitis. It, it's, well, let me ask a quick follow-up maybe. It's just, uh, it sounds like some of the themes for chemo that you're mentioning is a proxy for measuring the severity of inflammation. Is that safe to say? And then we'll get into it a little bit later, but that is what helps guide the treatment decision is kind of that measure of uh, inflammation severity. Is that? Absolutely. Yeah. So one question, binary appendicitis or not, and then within appendicitis is this complicated appendicitis that's already perforated. Um, if it's uncomplicated appendicitis, then yes, severity, because we've all seen the, quote, tip appendicitis or the borderline appendicitis, early appendicitis. There's a lot more treatment options in my mind for that patient compared to the, you know, 15 millimeter rip-roaring appendicitis with an appendicolith. So yes, half of its severity um, can definitely influence treatment. How big is an inflamed appendix or is that age-based? Super good question. And it's actually the bane of our existence as imaging gets more sensitive because, you know, theoretically, the cutoff when you talk to radiologists is that an appendix is supposed to be under six millimeters. So the seven millimeter appendix is the, you know, a point of torture. You know, is that a dilated appendix? And so, you know, we'll see these mildly hyperemic seven to eight millimeter appendix laparoscopically, and you're sort of like, meh, I probably could have treated that with antibiotics or something like that. It comes into your mind as you're doing that operation. Although, of course, you don't know where you're catching it on the natural history. That's what's hard about this. But definitely, if you see an appendix that's 10 millimeters or bigger, that is a dilated appendix. To me, that is a more severe, obstructed, inflamed appendix. Under that nine to 10 millimeter region is real. The seven, eight millimeter appendix... Um, I think can be a little bit more borderline. And I, the sense I get or, you know, what I practiced or what I learned was when a patient comes in with these history findings or exams that you're concerned about appendicitis, we get the ultrasound. And a lot of times the ultrasound seems equivocal, whether it's seven centimeters or it's not observed. Are there one, if the appendix is not observed, uh, I assume that means that it's not a 15 millimeter rip-roaring appendicitis. But as I'll start with Alex, but then go to Pratima. As a EM physician, when do you pull the trigger to get follow-up imaging? And is that CT or MRI? And then maybe we'll go to Pratima to see what you're looking for at the different imaging spots. But so Alex, we'll, we'll start with you. So my personal practice, the way that I do it is it, it depends a little bit on my pretest probability of all this. So the ones that I'm like, oh boy, there is no chance this is appendicitis and they don't see the appendix. What I'm also doing in addition to labs and an ultrasound is I'm trying to give them some therapies like 
Motrin or fluids or Zofran, because always if at the end of that ultrasound, if they don't see the appendix um, and I go back in there and they're literally like jumping up and running around the room and they're like trying to keep the cheeseburger out of their mouth or whatever they're like. And I'm like, and they're like, he's a completely new man. And I'm like, the white count was low and I'm mashing and whatever tenderness was there before isn't there. Then I feel reassured. And I, I, to me, I sort of back down a little bit. So that's, I guess, the first thing is that I, I, I think a reassessment piece is key. If they're still tender, then I think you have to keep pursuing. The second thing is then it depends a little bit on the white count. So even a visualized normal appendix with a, a white count of 30, I'd still be fairly concerned. And so ultrasound can be somewhat deceiving in terms of being falsely reassuring at times. The way it works at Boston Children's is that our next line kind of imaging studies an MRI. And so that decision is basically made in conjunction with our surgical team. And so we basically at that point with an equivocal or non-diagnostic ultrasound where we're still concerned and I've gone back and reassessed and I'm still worried, then we would ask someone like Pratima to basically help us to decide, should we get an MRI? I also work at a community hospital once a month and we don't have an MRI machine there. And so it's often a discussion with a family, but I'd say 95% of the time it's a CT is the next imaging study. And there's not a pediatric surgeon there to basically be available. When I say 95 and not 100 is that there will be a rare family um, that I'll at least give the option to or discuss with transfer to get an MRI, um, which is always sort of a whole nother can of worms about resource utilization. But I'd say in general, it's a CT at the community hospital that doesn't have that MRI resource available. And is there evidence on CT versus MRI for appendicitis? Yes. I mean, CT is the gold standard in the sense that a CT is, it's very unusual for a CT to ever come back equivocal, um, especially looking at appendicitis. Sensitivity and specificity are well over, you know, in in the very high 90s. MRI, much like um, ultrasound, takes a special, they have to program the MR to do it properly. And so it does need to be at a place that knows how to do that. And even with that, the sensitivity is around 87%. So it's not perfect. And we've gotten equivocal MRIs back at a place that does a lot of them. So you do kind of gamble a little bit with MR as your next imaging modality versus CT. You're more likely to get a definitive answer in CT. Uh, For me, some of the factors when an ultrasound comes back equivocal, the first thing I want to know is, you know, why was it equivocal? Is this a teenager with a, you know, a lot of adipose tissue, they didn't get good windows and couldn't see the appendix? That's a different situation from this is a skinny four-year-old, we got perfect views, we just couldn't find the thing and there's no signs of inflammation in the area. So, um, knowing why it was equivocal, I think, can be helpful. And occasionally, they'll see some signs of appendicitis, but they couldn't follow it back to the cecum, so on. I think those are the truly equivocal in the sense that there's some signs of appendicitis, but they just couldn't make a home run diagnosis. Um, so CT is definitely more sensitive, but I think most of the time in your equivocal cases where your pretest probability is high, MR is going to make the diagnosis when ultrasound couldn't. And I think you know, for us, and and I encourage all centers to do this, we've looked at our own data at children's about kids who've come through our ER. And I have found the white count to be a really good kind of tiebreaker in those situations of equivocal ultrasound. And a kid who is kind of, sort of looks like appendicitis, the white count's under nine, and the ultrasound wasn't diagnostic. With our own data, I'm able to tell those parents, you know what, your kid has about a 3% chance that this is appendicitis. It's not zero. You're still going to have to watch him. Uh, or her, but might not be worth doing the MR because the likelihood is so low. 
And maybe just a logistics question, Alex, when you have a patient that there's kind of an equivocal history and maybe the ultrasound, well, when do you call the surgical console? It sounds like if you're slam dunk easy, you call them right away. But if the ultrasound, do you wait to see if it comes back? And then if it's equivocal as surgery, does this make sense to discharge or get further imaging? And then Pratimo, how annoyed are you if you get consulted before an ultrasound or before a CT or, or what, what are your uh, both sense of when to get surgery on board? I think it's really institution dependent. Um, so at a lot of adult hospitals, for example, the model of a surgery consult is basically, we found this surgical problem on imaging. Can you fix it? Or or is that the right thing to fix it? Whereas um, at a lot of children's hospitals, including Boston Children's, it's kind of a mutual collaboration about the medical diagnostics and sort of working together to kind of figure that out. And so it's it's just part of our model that I think actually historically was born out of um, a desire to decrease CT usage, but has sort of continued um, in the spirit of collaboration of trying to kind of involve the surgeons earlier. So our pathway, um, the letter of the law actually says that once you are getting an ultrasound for appendicitis, that you should involve the surgeons and get a consult. I'll say in practice, I generally wait for that ultrasound result myself, unless I'm fairly clinically worried ahead of time and want to kind of facilitate care and get it started earlier. So that's that's in general my my personal approach because if there's a patient that ends up having a white count of six and their pain is better and the ultrasound was diagnostic and negative for appendicitis, I I then think their chance of appendicitis is so extraordinarily low that I, I think we can spare them the consult. Yeah, I have to agree. I think um I think most one of the things I love about pediatric care is that folks are so collaborative about this sort of thing. And it's twofold. One, sometimes the decision making on whether to get that test or not is collaborative between the ER physicians and team, surgery and the family, um and how willing they are to watch and wait because one of the things about appendicitis is that without any treatment it should progress and at least or at least remain symptomatic. And so you know, I think it can be helpful to have surgery involved, even if ultimately everyone decides no further imaging, we're going to feed this child and send them home because that family feels like they got a thorough evaluation. They've been counseled on the risks. We can never say that odds are zero, but if we can tell them they're really low and this is why we feel comfortable sending you home, I think the odds that they're going to bounce back from anxiety is much lower. So I find it, I don't find myself annoyed when I get called to see that kid. <laughs> um, and I have to say the number of times I've been called before an ultrasound is really, really low. And it's usually those kids who are frankly showing a little bit of signs of, you know, SIRS, septus. I don't think we say SIRS anymore, but those kinds of, uh, you know, more systemic signs of infection. And I do think it's helpful to be involved from the get-go because that kid pretest probability is really high. This is great. And I think a great example of collaboration, which is why it's so wonderful to have you both on the episode. And I think, Alex, you're absolutely right. I think this is the medpeds in me of being terrified on a surgery consult where I didn't have all the data that they wanted and just being still perpetually shamed from from those encounters. No shame from the surgeons here. You got to come to the Pete side. Yeah, for sure. So so my, my question is, and let's start with Alex on this one. What What are the things that are mimickers for appendicitis? Like, what are the things that I need to make sure that they are on my differential and that as I'm doing my things, whether it's just the labs, you know, or something else I'm looking for on the ultrasound, what, what are the things that I need to look out for? I know we sort of, we talked a couple about a couple of them already, but can you give us a, a list of things that, you, that are mu- not, yeah. are must not miss? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, 
I think it's helpful for myself. And I actually talk about this with families too, because it's things that we kind of think about and work up for. So in females, um, I always consider ovarian torsion just because it's also can uh, be in the right lower quadrant. And so for, I'd say, almost all uh, females that are presenting where I'm somewhat concerned for appendicitis, I'm generally also getting uh, an ovarian ultrasound too to look for torsion. For males also, I think a testicular exam is important to look for testicular torsion. I think boys can sometimes be less forthcoming, especially if there's developmental delay or something along those lines. I think doing an exam is important. And I think common things do tend to be more common. So I think even the kids that I think are more likely to be appendicitis just clinically, I still think virogastro is a, a takes up a big chunk of them. And so there can be gas in that area that can be uncomfortable. There's something called mesenteric adenitis that you can get this big lymph nodes uh, that annoyingly are close to the appendix and uh, can cause pain in that area as well. It can be tender. Boy, there's a lot of constipation out there too. So that certainly can cause discomfort. Um, and then one thing that kind of sometimes gets left behind a renal colic like nephrolithiasis. And so on our ultrasound protocol, they take a look at the uh, at the kidneys as well um, to see um, is there hydronephrosis or anything like that. So that's kind of baked into the uh, order set. So that's um, something to keep in mind. What, as well. what about like Meckel's diverticulum? Do I, is that something that's something I, really, I think I learned back in medical school? Is that something I need to care about? So uh, we do see Meckel's um, sometimes. It's it's often basically. During the workup, sometimes it can present classically like Meckel's, but uh, sometimes as part of the diagnostic workup, there's an ultrasound or CT or MRI that'll visualize something that looks suspicious for Meckel's um, or even intraoperatively. And I'll, I'll defer to our surgical colleague uh, in terms of finding something that looks more like a Meckel's than appendicitis. Uh, so sometimes it's not quite so clear, but I have to say that's much, much more rare than uh, appendicitis. Yes, agree. Definitely way more rare. But sometimes when you're picking up a patient who has complicated what you're what you're calling complicated appendicitis, abscesses in the abdomen, and you're not necessarily seeing the appendix, as is often the case, I think in those cases, you really do need to keep a Meckles um, in the differential. And we've certainly seen kids come in with bad perforated appendicitis that turned out to be a perforated Meckles. Um, and in fact, so much so that if you're in the OR for what you expected to be appendicitis and you find a normal appendix, it is actually surgical principle to then run the small bowel and make sure you go look for a Meckles because they can they can be mimics. But um, appendicitis is going to be far, far, far more more common. And maybe talking about that kind of broad differential, does that change or how does your approach change um, between, say, toddlers and adolescents? Alex, maybe we'll start with you again because on the, on the first pathway, but uh, yeah. if it's a four-year-old versus a 19-year-old, what, what are your thought processes? So um, toddlers are way, way tougher. Um, I, uh, I have certainly missed appendicitis in a toddler before, and I think a lot of folks who've been PEM, in PEM have missed it as well. It's challenging for a number of reasons with a toddler. One is that they won't let you examine them often. So they're screaming and kicking you off and stuff like that, which is just part of the fun and the challenge of pediatrics, but uh, it makes it tough. I think some of the historical clinical features that we kind of think about with appendicitis, like anorexia or bumps bothering on the way in, uh, good luck getting a two-year-old to kind of go through that in a kind of clear way. And so... And then I have to say it's it's harder to put an IV in a three-year-old than a 17-year-old. Uh, so it's just not a big deal to uh, undergo that, whereas it requires this huge team to kind of get them in and there's tears involved and it's just a, a big production. 
And so that sometimes can sway you away from working someone up that you may have otherwise would have if it was an easy kind of thing to get. So then it's kind of just relying a little bit on Gestalt. I think sometimes I'm, I might be a little bit more inclined to try things like Tylenol and Zofran and see how they're doing afterwards. I mentioned that I had missed an appendicitis case in a toddler. And one kind of red flag that stood out to me was that they really weren't walking. Um, and mom thought that they were just tired. But that was, a, I think, a, an opportunity for that one case that I had missed. And so that, for me, has kind of been burned into my brain. If someone that's either not walking normally or refusing to walk, those are the kids that I push a little harder to try to get the uh, diagnostics on because that probably is someone that's peritoneal and probably needs a little bit more of a workup. Great. Um, and thinking about kind of diagnosis and possible delayed diagnoses, um, does this differ in terms of race or ethnicity? Have we noticed anything that's borne out in the literature? There is um, actually literature on um, how race and ethnicity affect um, our ability to diagnose and take care of appendicitis. And, you know, it's hard to diagnose, it's hard to measure delayed diagnosis because we don't have natural history studies of appendicitis. But if you use complicated appendicitis as your surrogate, perforated appendicitis. Then, you know, in a big study where they looked at about 400,000 kids, they did see that Black and Hispanic children were more likely to have complicated appendicitis and less frequently to have undergone laparoscopic procedures. Um, there do also seem to be higher rates of complicated appendicitis in publicly insured versus privately insured patients, and that Black children are less likely to receive pain medicine or opioids, especially for severe pain. So none of these studies comment on why these things happen. But I think we have to take our lead from what we're learning about how access to care, implicit bias, um, and frankly, overt racism play a role in all of these things. So there is absolutely no evidence I've ever seen that race or ethnicity affects the pathophysiology of appendicitis. But I think we do all have to pay attention to how those things might subtly influence our ability to diagnose it. Yeah, that's important. So very well said. I appreciate that. And I think that's something that we try to, to strive for on the show to to call out for each episode. And it's unfortunate that the delay in diagnosis and the health disparities uh, across uh, race uh, often apply to all topics that we talk about for, I think, a lot of the socially generated reasons you mentioned. And I think actually the use of things like pediatric appendicitis score and having you know, algorithms for how you work up a kid with pain kind of liberates you from some of your own implicit bias and it's less gestalt and more does this kid meet X, Y, and Z criteria. So um, hopefully as we develop more of those things, that may be a way to kind of approach getting past this. Excellent. And so, so with the, the kid, the child in front of us who, um, let's say the ultrasound is non-equivocal. It is a rip roaring appendicitis. Well, maybe, yeah, we'll even, we'll even say maybe it is. Well, maybe it's borderline. Regardless, let's say, let's talk about treatment. So Alex and, and, uh, Pratima, you're going into the patient's room and saying, you know, your patient has a diagnosis. We're expert clinicians and diagnosticians. We did it. Uh, it's appendicitis. What are our next steps? You know, how do you walk through a parent of this is what we're going to do next? Or how do you decide what we're going to do next? So um, I think at that point in the ED, um, usually I basically tell the parents that, that it's appendicitis, explain what it is. And then I usually say that there's kind of two components to treatment. In general, everyone gets antibiotics. And so we're going to start some antibiotics. And then I, I usually say, a lot of kids with this will end up getting a surgery for treatment. And so we ask our experts on appendicitis, the surgeons, to kind of help us to meet you and help to kind of decide. So they're going to come in soon and chat with you about treatment options. And so that's kind of 
we and so I, I I try to crack the door a little bit, uh, uh, but I usually try to at least fire a warning shot that there's a decent chance they're going to have a surgery in their future. And we appreciate that because no parent <laughs> likes to be surprised by a surgeon walking into yeah, their room. Yeah. Yes, and I think as Alex indicated, the first thing that's most important is to get antibiotics in that kit, which um, is actually an interesting change. And not so long ago, there was an expectation that antibiotics be given a certain amount of time before the appendectomy. And so some kids would actually get delayed antibiotics waiting to go to the OR so that it was given in time for the OR. Um, But now it's widely accepted. Antibiotics should be given as soon as the diagnosis is made. And then whether or not you need to redose in the OR is a separate issue. But I think in the United States, first-line therapy for uncomplicated appendicitis is going to remain a laparoscopic appendectomy. The operative risk is super low. The surgery is highly successful. Most kids go home from the recovery room. And the long-term risks which for most parents I'm talking about small bowel obstructions from adhesions is super, super low. It's, it's exceedingly low. So that's what I offer off the bat for a, you know, one centimeter inflamed appendix and a kid who has no red flags. Oh, I'm sorry. No red flags for operative risk. I'm going to offer a lap happy. Yeah. What are you going to say to the family if they really just don't want a procedure? They are really hesitant about an appendectomy. How do you manage that? So. I think actually there is a role for antibiotic treatment in the care of uncomplicated appendicitis that we're talking about here. And I think it depends. And this is where, you know, having a really honest conversation with the family matters a lot. So the first question that I'll often ask in that scenario are, what are your concerns about going ahead with surgery? And so sometimes things that come up are fears about anesthesia and surgery, which with a little bit of counseling and explaining what those risks are, they may change their mind fears about recovery and how that might impact other things that are a priority for that child. I've had kids who've worked, you know, for years up to a a big sports tournament that's happening a week later and they just can't imagine missing it. Those things matter. They're important for the psychosocial development of that child. So knowing things like that make a difference. So some of it is just having a conversation about what it is they're worried about. I will never offer a treatment that I think is inferior to another treatment to a patient. And so for me, the reasons why I think antibiotic therapy can be in some cases inferior to surgery in that one centimeter real appendicitis kid is that kids who don't have surgery, you have to watch out for recurrent appendicitis. So about 80 to 90% of kids who get antibiotic therapy, which if we're talking about the studies involves admission IV antibiotics, and then a course of oral antibiotics, which isn't necessarily what we do in practice, but that's what the studies did. About, you know, 10 to 20% of those kids had appendicitis again. And what that means is for those families, every little bellyache that that kid had after that initial episode of appendicitis raises the question of, is this appendicitis or not? So for me, it's a lot of counseling that if we're going to choose non-operative management, it needs to be a family that's going to be able to handle that bit of uncertainty that this may not fully treat the appendicitis. You might have to come back. You might have to have delayed surgery. They could get appendicitis again. You might be coming to the ER for random belly pain episodes. And if they're okay with all of those things, then absolutely, I think antibiotic therapy is an option for um, uncomplicated appendicitis. There are two things on that ultrasound, though, that would make me not offer it. An appendicolith or major dilation. So if the appendix is over 11 millimeters or there's an appendicolith, the recurrence rate is higher and I generally don't offer um, antibiotic therapy. Well, well, thank you for like sort of showing which, which patients you think antibiotic therapy would be good for. So say this, so we changed the case and it is someone who we think we can follow up and seems to be a better choice for antibiotics. 
which antibiotics are we choosing? And you say we, we don't offer oral antibiotics typically after, like, can you, can you explain that a little bit? And so what's, so what's recommended and what's actual practice? So the actual studies admitted the patients, most of them got 24 to 48 hours of broad spectrum IV antibiotics, either in the form of zafoxetin. I think there was one study that even used Zosin and then sent them out on Augmentin for a total seven-day course. In practice, I have not done that because I think if you're treating them non-operatively, they have to be well enough that you'd feel okay sending them home. And a kid who I thought needed IV antibiotics, I'd be a little bit worried about treating non-operatively. So in practice, what I've done in the rare scenario where me, the family, everyone's on board with antibiotic treatment, the first line is uh, seven days of Augmentin. And that is a child that I see in clinic, uh, usually within a few days of treatment, just to make sure that they're continuing to to improve because it should be the kind of thing where they're really better within a day or two of treatment. And if they're not, they might need to either come back in, be reevaluated, or have surgery in a delayed fashion. So when you're doing counseling with, with families, what are the what are you telling them to look out for? What are the things you're like, you need to hit, bring them right back in right away? Or this is something I need to know when you come to your follow-up with me. Like, what, what, What's that counseling sound like? Yeah, the way I describe it to them is actually I use pimples as an explanation for all kinds of things. And it's sort of like any other kind of skin infection or abscess. If you start antibiotic treatment and the redness, the pain, the swelling goes away in a couple days, then it's working and you should feel much better. And that's the way I describe it for appendicitis too. We're just treating a pimple or an area of inflammation on the inside. So I'd expect most kids to feel better, be running around, be themselves within a couple of days of treatment. And if they're not, I want to have a phone call about it. And that's a kid I might bring back to clinic, repeat an ultrasound, recheck labs. Um, so they have to be willing to kind of keep a close in close contact with me if we're going to do that. And a lot of that is honestly my comfort level with it because the number of patients that I treat with antibiotics for appendicitis is exceedingly low. So I keep a really close eye on them because we don't have a ton of experience with doing that. We haven't had to. Um, so for me, it's just, I want to know that the kid is essentially back to normal. And if they're not, I'd like to reevaluate them. I'd be very curious on when you choose the surgical pathway, how often are you going in only to find a normal appendix? Or how often are you doing an exploratory laparotomy essentially without defined imaging? Because I feel like there's a, a saying, and I'm going to mess it up, but where if you're not doing exploratory laparotomies with normal appendices, you're not doing enough laparotomies, I think was the saying. Is that old, not true anymore? Or, <laughs> or uh, is that something that is still the case where that's deemed part of the the process is that you are doing a couple of those? No, historically, um, negative appy rates of up to 20% were considered reasonable and normal. And in fact, I've recently saw something on social media with physicians talking about who would take a male, you know, teen with right lower quadrant pain, classic appendicitis story to the operating room without any imaging. The answer is no one. No one would really do that anymore because our tolerance of negative appendectomy is actually super ridiculously low. And we, at Children's, for example, anybody who gets a negative appendectomy, that case gets reviewed so that we can learn, you know, what, what should we have seen beforehand to avoid this? So the actual rates are under 1% now. It's really unusual that you're going to do a lap appendectomy or an open appendectomy, whatever you're doing, and find a normal appendix. That being said, I have seen the seven millimeter, there's three dilated blood vessels. You know, it's not rip-roaring appendicitis. We certainly take those out, but they're not normal. Uh, they're not normal appendixes. 
And I know you've mentioned a couple of times complicated appendicitis and we have ruptured appendicitis. So how does that management differ from just simple, regular appendicitis? Yeah. So that's, I think, where you're going to find a lot less clarity on management because the population is so diverse and the data really isn't as helpful. And for me in practice and what I've learned from a lot of experienced mentors is that whether it's early perforation versus late perforation matters a lot. And there isn't a clean timeline on that. It's not, you know, oh, after these many days, you don't get an appendectomy anymore. But in general, kids who show up within three days of symptoms, they get that ultrasound. They say, oh, it looks perforated, but there's no organization to the fluid. Those kids, I still offer an appendectomy. And, you know, if you look at the studies, um, which, again, are really hard to interpret because the populations are very diverse, not all complicated appendicitis is the same. If you look at the studies, they say there's no difference if you take, an, if you take it out versus if you treat with antibiotics and or percutaneous drainage. But again, in my bias and my experience, I find the kids who just get that appendix out bounce back sooner. It's not that they might not come back to the ER with an abscess, you know, two weeks later, but they're home in between. Um, so it's a little bit of a, a personal preference thing. But I think if there's no abscess with rind that shows maturity that is going to be a good target for an interventional radiologist to drain, those kids do well with an appendectomy. In the scenarios where there's a huge phlegmon, there's an abscess with rind, those children get admitted to the um, hospital, have percutaneous drainage, and we typically recommend appendectomy six to eight weeks later. Unlike the old days, though, we're not keeping them on PN and, and so on. They're, they're eating and drinking if they're able. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, maybe... Um Maybe, Alex, should you talk about what, while waiting for the surgery consult, what antibiotics you would start? Would it be IV versus oral? Um, and then maybe if the patient is transitioning to oral, especially if non-operative seems appropriate, um, when you would make that transition? Or uh, or if you're doing operations, it, would you do it immediately after the surgery? Let, could we talk about that maybe, of, of what the initial antibiotic choice are and when and what you would transition to? Yeah, so I can I can talk about that part. So um, I'll say that this is uh, uniquely institution dependent, that a lot of different hospitals have different regimens that they've used. And uh, from the time that I've been practicing at Children's, there have been at least three or four different iterations of antibiotic regimens. Um, uh, so it was it was Zosin for a little while. Um, and then there was some thoughts that there was some complications related to Zosin and, uh, in kids. And so then it had transitioned to Ceftraxone and Flagyl, um, was sort of the regimen for some time. And now there's a nationwide shortage of Flagyl. Uh, and so we're back to Zosin right now, unless there's some contraindication for Zosin. And then there's a, like a, a secret stash of Flagyl for like very unique cases. But in general, as a temporary thing, we're back to Zosin. But uh, there's been things like Zofoxetin and other kind of things at different institutions. I was going to ask, what if we have a known beta-lactam allergy, like penicillin or whatnot? Do we feel comfortable going with something like um, Piptazo? Or do we, should we go on to a different cephalosporin or carbapenem or something like that? So I'll say that in general, what ha happens more commonly are kids with a, a penicillin allergy that's not anaphylaxis, that in general their rates of sort of uh, having an allergy for, to a cephalosporin like, cephal uh, like ceftraxone is vanishingly small. So we, we feel like that is okay to go ahead and just still continue with something like ceftraxone. 
I'll be honest, I'm a little less familiar if they have a, a true anaphylactic reaction, what the kind of next step would be. My guess would be a carbapenem like uh, viropenem, but I, I'm not sure what the official would be. Fatima, do you have any thoughts on the antibiotics? Um, just for oral antibiotics, if you're treating non-operative, uh, most of us will use Augmentin as our first line for seven days. Um, in kids who do have a penicillin allergy, um, the next line that's recommended is Cipro and Flagyl. And in the rare scenario where you're not able to give any of those, which I've run into, you can try to substitute Cipro with Levaquin or whatever. It's- not a national shortage. But if if you're really running into a problem where a suitable oral antibiotic can't be found, then that's in a situation where you may not be able to do non-operative management. So it is important to be sure that the child is actually going to take and tolerate the antibiotic you're recommending. And maybe one other clarification, just so that I uh, go home with the right new evidence for antibiotic for or non-operative management. The ideal non-operative management it sounds like it's someone who is essentially has had, well, before I make, well, yeah, no, I'll make a fool out of myself. It's a exercise in, <laughs> um, in, in humility to try to model. Um, uh, it sounds like it's, so if it's clear, uncomplicated appendicitis, those are great operatives. So the non-operative would really come for people that maybe had a ruptured appendicitis that is now late stage without complications. Um, is that correct? Is that, or let me, I'll, I'll ask it better this way. Who's the ideal non-operative candidate? Um, meaning non-operative from a surgery or IR standpoint? So what I would say is, or at least my approach to this after considering these data are, in a kid who has uncomplicated appendicitis, I do still think the best treatment is going to be a laparoscopic appendectomy. The data says that 90 to 80 to 90% of kids could have either an appendectomy or antibiotics in that case and have successful treatment of appendicitis. So there is a role for non-operative management of straight up uncomplicated appendicitis in the right patient with the right family support um, and close follow-up. The second group that gets non-operative treatment are those complicated appendicitis patients that you referred to. So these are the kids who have an abscess, really bad phlegmon, operative risk is high. Those are the kids that are being admitted to the hospital to get IV antibiotics until things cool off and then have an interval appendectomy. There's kind of two scenarios in which you might consider not operating. One is heavily influenced by patient preference, family preference. The other is that operative risk is a little bit too high um, due to the inflammation. Got it. And for that second group where the the operative risk is high, you would still plan to do an interval appendectomy in the future? Correct. And that's an important point. Um, Interval appendectomy is recommended for perforated, complicated appendicitis that isn't treated at the initial um, operation. But interestingly, there is no data to guide whether we should be doing interval appendectomies for kids who are treated non-operatively for their initial appendicitis. And the current practice is you just hit the reset button and they either get appendicitis again or not. So we don't do interval appendectomies for non-operative management for uncomplicated appendicitis. Got it. Excellent. Cool. And then obviously for the operative appendectomies, we, we, we monitor for C. diff for the rest of their life. That was the other world. Anytime they have diarrhea. Um, this was great. I yes, think this was, so uh, much. this was awesome to kind of go through the classic presentation, some of the diagnostic uh, tests, the diagnosis uh, differential, and then some of the um, more nuances of 
of treatment. To bring it all home, are there key take-home points that you think listeners, whether they're students, trainees, or attendings, should have when approaching appendicitis or any other take-home points? Um, and maybe Alex, we'll start with you. Yeah, I, I'd say um, have a healthy respect uh, for the appendix that it, it will um, humble the most seasoned of practitioners. And so I think uh, having a pretty low threshold to think about it and worry about it. I think all the mentors that I have a lot of respect for all talk about the time that they were burned by appendicitis. And so I appreciate your story too, Alex. And I feel like I have never been burned by appendicitis. And that means that I am not a good clinician yet, or I am not yet, <laughs> I have not yet hit the level of being a master clinician um, to maybe really have that story. You didn't realize so, you missed it yet. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm really master clinician. I have no <laughs> idea of all the appendicitis I missed. Um, Pradima, how about yourself? Take home points. Yeah, I think along the lines of what Alex said, I think it's really important to be transparent with patients, too, about that reality. When you're sending that kid home where you're like, I don't think this is appendicitis, but, you know, for these reasons, but I can't be sure and this is what you should look out for. I think, you know, the more patients understand that this is one of those diagnoses that are not black and white and they might be back in two days. And if they kind of maybe saw that that was a possibility, they're going to be much less cranky about it. So being transparent about the fact that um, this is not a perfect science. Well, thank you guys both for spending this evening with us. I learned a lot more about appendicitis more than I ever thought I would learn. And so I'm really excited to to apply all this to my practice. Thanks for having us. Thank uh, you guys. Anything else that you guys would like to plug or any resources that you think we should send our listeners to to, to check out? Do they get to see the children's algorithm? I do you know, I'm part, I'm obviously partial to it because it's ours, but um, it does have our kind of um, tree with the white count, et cetera. And I find it to be really helpful in those equivocal cases. So I'll put a plug in for that. That's great. If it's publicly available, we'll put it in the show notes. And if it's not, if you'll email it to us, we'll put it on the internet. So uh... <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> Uh, I don't have anything I want to plug, but I just want to say hi to my wife, Rebecca, who I'm sure is going to listen to this later. Uh, <laughs> she's 20 weeks pregnant. So uh, that's our exciting news. Congrats. Now, now the whole world knows. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you, guys. Very, very Thanks. exciting. Oh, what a great plug. Uh, great. Well, again, thank you both for, for sharing your time, for your expertise. This was an incredible episode and a great collaboration, which is not something we typically do. And I think we should do it more because this was, this was really wonderful. So uh, thank you both uh, very, very much. We really appreciate you. Thank you guys so much. Bye. This has been another episode of the Cripsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producers tonight for this episode, Dr. Mike Fishman, Dr. Jamie Lim, Dr. Jessica Kelly, and our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for joining us. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Michael Fish Fishman. I've been Jamie. I've been Jess Kelly. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you, and good night. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.